That, you know, it's like how kids talk about baseball players. That's how we talk about albums. We're just trying to postpone mortality. They need that to fill some kind of void that they have. The search for the Yeti. He's a duck. <laughs> well, don't interrupt. Open your eyes to these mustard lies. It's the Smashing Pumpcast. I'm Frank Garcia Hill. I'm Pat O'Brien. And, oh boy, um, we're not going to mustard lie to you folks. We got a great show today. We're talking about. We'll just get right into it. I mean, we're talking about Gish. We're into the full album Gish. territory, and we're kicking it off. We are d- finally here. Uh, thank you to those of you who have been listening so far for being patient with us. I know some people got a little itchy, you know, got a little antsy being like, what, what, what are they doing here? What, what, they're covering the demo tapes. They're, they're covering these singles. What, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. I know. We heard. We, he- we hear you. We see you. And, um, yeah, we're here to give the people what they want, but I will say, um, it did diving deep into Gish was made all the more interesting, um, having all that demo stuff, you know, having all the bands pre Gish history fresh in mind. It it did, um, it did make this experience for us at least all the more interesting and illuminating just in terms of, you know, thinking about what the band was becoming on this album and where they'd been for the last couple of years. Yeah. Cause I think that's what we found value in seeing where they started into where they became professional. Um, and seeing that, that journey, because we're, we're interested in, I don't know, as, as us as creators as well, uh, seeing where you start from and through the trial and error and the years of experience where you end up, it's really, um, I think it's interesting. I think it's worth visiting and, uh, going through those demo tapes, there was a lot of interesting stuff that I just had no, um, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't never heard some of those songs before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then just this moment in time, the recording of Gish is like, the, you know, obviously it's the and and it just so happens that Billy recently did this Gish deep dive or a series of Gish deep dives, which we definitely studied and referred to for this. Um, so it you know worked out really well. But it's it's very interesting to see uh to see them on the precipice of like okay we're friends we're doing this we're seeing where it goes it's kind of like you know we're not we're not making money we're not you know. We're not famous and to just see what it looks that transition what it looks like and it seems like you know butch vig's involvement and um you know this moment in time was obviously what that transition yeah that i mean uh yeah what timing right we just passed the 29th anniversary of gish and then he did these uh the the album deep dive he had planned on doing uh, a series of album deep dives. Right now, uh, we're still waiting on Siamese Dream. I was kind of hoping that uh, he would have all these done before we would probably hit the other albums because it's very convenient for us. Works great get, for like, us, you know, yeah. First-hand uh, accounts and knowledge to talk about on this. But, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, his at, at this time, his Instagram has been... Uh, uh, scrubbed. There's no posts on there. We had a copy of the first uh, deep dive, but the follow up we did not have a copy of, like a uh, one that we could refer to. So thank you to uh, Richard Abel, uh, listener Richard Abel, for 
for having that on hand so that we could have that to refer to. Thank you to Richard for, uh, yeah, for making us able to watch that video. Richard Able, baby. Thank you, Pat. Um, <laughs> this is what I bring to the table. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, uh, we should probably just get into it because there's a ton of stuff. This is probably the most notes I've ever had. Uh, and I, I think I might try to bounce as much of this. I don't want it to seem like I'm, you know, reading off a Wikipedia page. I want to be able to speak from my own heart about this and stuff. But man, there's so much information now that we got because of these deep dives and just in general because of the 29th anniversary and people just there seems to be like a resurgence of just interest in this album. So there's a lot more stuff that's just kind of come to light. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the 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 very basics are um, came out in 1991 and was produced by Billy as well as Butch Vig. Correct. May 28th, 1991. Uh, and it was released by Caroline Records in the U.S., Hut Records in the U.K. And then in late 1994, the album was slightly remastered and subsequently re-released under the Virgin banner. Uh, with an accompanying re-release on Hut in the UK. And uh, he talked about this, like, I think there's like a very slight difference. I guess unless you're a real audiophile, um, you can't really tell too much of a difference. But he said that the original master was from the DAT tapes that they had. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they remastered it, he went back to the analog tapes because uh, he felt that it was warmer and richer and that the album sounded better than from the digital transfer. I personally, last night, I re-listened to this album. I've been re-listening to this album in anticipation of uh, doing this episode, but I, I re-listened to the uh, uh, the uh, the reissue, if you will. Hey now, hey, 2011 reissue hashtag reissue. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to hear because I compared the two. I listened to the original uh, copy that I had on my computer and then listen to the remaster the 2011 remix remaster uh, and it was really interesting to hear the slight differences but they're there yeah i um the, i guess the two i i don't know i probably do have the a rip of my cd on um on a hard drive but i i listened i happened to um, well, kind of in anticipation of this, I, I finally ordered Gish on vinyl, uh, mm -hmm. the reissue, of course. Um, I had a little bit of a setback because um, it was delivered, and it was delivered while my wife and I were in the hospital uh, having our baby. But, yeah, congrats, Pat. Thank I mean, you, we mentioned this you. on a mini episode, but I know some of you don't listen to those. Not to make you feel bad, yeah. but... Uh, yeah, uh, Pat has uh, had a beautiful baby girl. Yes, and so that's, um, yeah, that's been mainly what my life has been, but I've also, uh, basically that and listening to, to Gish. Not the mama! Give me a little history, Pat, of like when this album came into your life and what, what version did you buy and like how, how did you come about uh, Gish? Yeah, well, this this album, I'll, I'll admit, Gish, like I got into the pumpkins as I've talked about in the Siamese dream era and then kind of you know quickly after that you know melancholy and I was sort of I feel like I experienced Siamese dream and melancholy and kind of everything 
going forward in real time. And then Gish, I was definitely aware of because I love the band and I kind of, you know, um, I'm sure I got the reissued version or the original, you know, uh, reissued version. Um, I think I had both Siamese Dream and Melancholy before I actually um, bought Gish because, you know, I was a pretty young kid at the time and it was like, you know, hey, Melancholy is an investment to begin with. So I probably, you know, <laughs> right. had to save up after that one. But um, yeah, that's a few lawns or, or more. Definitely. But all, all that to say, I. It, it, because I was so um, into like these other two albums, cover to cover, and uh, I, though I did want everything the band released, I never fully. Um, Gish was an album that, unlike, you know, uh, unlike the, all the subsequent ones, um, I didn't really have in my bones as much. Certain songs were. Um, you know, Rhinoceros and Daydream, and and it was cool doing this because it it um, back in the day I'd never really listened to it cover to cover the way I did the other album, so it was nice to be able to do that. Yeah, that was kind of like a little bit similar to my experience because you know I came into the band you know during Siamese Dream as well, and I was aware of its existence and. Um, I didn't really, again, like you said, you know, when you're a kid, you only have so much money to spend on albums. And I had kind of delayed it and put it off. Um, and it wasn't until after I got uh, Pisces Iscariot when that came out. Um, and I heard, you know, I was like, oh, when I was reading the liner notes, because Billy goes through each song saying like what it was a B-side to and what mm -hmm. it was. And it was because of that that I was like, oh, these are B-sides to the Gish uh, tracks, you know, so or some of them were, and I was like, I think I need to finally get this. And I remember, I think I can't remember when Pisces Iscariot came out, but it was after that, either for pretty sure it was for my birthday that year, I had asked for Gish and I got a copy of it. And I, I was kind of like listening through it, I was, um, Immediately, I was into some songs mm -hmm. and other songs. I, I, I was kind of like, eh, you know, I didn't have the sound of Siamese Dream at that time, you know, and, and some of um, Pisces Iscariot that I was really into. Mm -hmm. So I kind of dismissed some of the songs that I would skip. I, I'll talk about which ones I used to skip a lot. Um, but, you know, yeah, there were some standout tracks from there, but it kind of felt weird to me. It felt like so hippie ish and kind of weird. Whereas Siamese Dream was closer to like what I was raised on like Boston and Ario Speedwagon and a mm -hmm. lot of classic rock Sabbath, you know, like a lot of that stuff or even my bloody Valentine, you know, yeah. that I was getting into, it felt like a combination of those two things that I was very familiar with. Um, and then going back to Gish felt like, um, uh, it was like, it, it, it was different for me, you know, because there's a lot of Eastern influence to it. And there was like, uh, a certain kind of hippie psychedelia, type of uh, feeling to it that I wasn't quite used to at that time. 
Um, you know, I wasn't into like the earlier Pink Floyd stuff, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the stuff that, you know, was written on LSD and whatnot, you know, the Sid Barrett stuff. So I wasn't quite familiar with it and it felt like a little, like, I don't know. I just wasn't as into it. And then over the years, you know, I got more into it, but uh, it was always an album I'd have to kind of revisit and sit through and be like, okay, I, I like this now. I like this now because it was one of those albums over time where I was like, I can really appreciate it to where now I can appreciate the full uh, album. Yeah, same here. Same here. I, I can, you know, and it's interesting too because um, it's just interesting to hear Billy in these deep dives talk about their relationship to the psychedelia vibe that they were putting off and how it was kind of both earnest and sincere and they actually were you know expressing real influences but they're also kind of making fun of that um, i thought that was interesting do you buy that in this case i think i do i feel like billy makes a lot of claims where he's like we're actually making fun of it but uh, of whatever of x thing or we're actually having a laugh about this but he said a couple things this is what he said that that i th- i thought was was interesting he said because I, I feel like often in, in his comments recently when he's talking about the band or the old days or, 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 or any time he talks about like this is sort of the Smashing Pumpkins logic or the Smashing Pumpkins philosophy. I'm always like, right. oh, I didn't know there was a one or, you know, but it's it's mm-hmm. it, he's he describes it as um, we didn't f- we don't feel like we've got to hide the wires on our influences and then kind of having fun with it. We discover sort of new energy and i i i actually i really liked that and i do kind of get it with gish because um it is there there are sort of like there's just like um the, the look of the the band at the time the look of the the visual aesthetic and the sort of overt like like um retro um references just musical retro references i feel like they did do that they did just that they took these disparate influences like black sabbath and Jimi hendrix and more shoegazy stuff i think if it it, it, it's what gave us you know like the next album basically and 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 moments on this album too so i i do i do in this case just to answer your question i do i do buy it it made sense to me in this case, there's certain times Billy has said like about X moment in time. Oh, that was kind of just like a joke or we're having a laugh. And I'm, I would think to myself like, oh, it didn't seem like it, it seemed pretty sincere. Yeah. But, you know, Th- that's what that's what my my feeling is. It's like, oh, that's you seem to be joking. There's a lot of laughs going on right, <laughs> during right. this very serious time, it seems like. Yeah. And yeah. for you to use it uh, t- uh, towards your music where no one else is in on the joke except for you right right it feels a little it felt a little like weird to me to say that but i mean if that's what he says then you know i I, yeah that's what it is yeah Uh, but it just feels a little bit like we know as you know from performing comedy for over a decade and stuff of like you know we're we we have to provide context for people to follow along and if uh people aren't laughing you can't blame the audience and be like well what fuck you you don't get it and it's like well yeah of course they don't get it because they're not in on the joke they don't know the context for it yeah so i think it's kind of funny if like you know stephen malcolmist makes a comment about them being you know pretentious nature kids or whatever and then billy gets upset about it and it's like well stephen malcolmist is as uh 
wry and witty as he can be, he probably doesn't get that you're going for this ironic, you know, take on this stuff, you know? Right, right. I, I think there's like a, a criticism of the band at this time that uh, they just didn't get it. They weren't in on the joke. But I guess that's what makes it special for the people who are in on it. It makes it even more kind of a special exclusive yeah. type of club, you know, or feeling like we get it, you know, and it's just, I don't know. I, to me, I just had like, I kind of went back and forth on that statement a no, little bit. No, I totally know what you mean because it's not, it's not like a, a, a stand-up set where it's like, oh, fuck yeah, you're killing it. Like that's like everybody, le you know, it's not like, Billy's sense of humor, he, I, I, it's interesting watching the deep dives because if you watch him speak for an hour plus in this context, like he get it's in, like he he said he made a little a, a few little sort of just offhand little funny remarks, but they're so like um, muted. Like his humor is like I, I think probably not for everyone. <laughs> or not right, not right, accessible right. to everyone like one other thing before i guess we dive into just one other general thing that that struck me diving into gish both listening to it and learning about it is that the dynamic the dynamics of the band i think i had in my mind that gish was this moment in the band's history where things were very it was like a foursome things were very like equitable like Darcy sings on some you know Darcy sings here or like you know and then it kind of got into um more of like the bit like Billy being in charge of everything but not the yeah. case it, it seems like the bands like the 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 butting of heads between Billy and Darcy is just like bam right that like out of the it feels like the dynamics were already firmly in place obviously billy tracked uh, you know pretty much all the instrumentation on the album that was that was interesting to me because we all knew like that to be true of siamese dream yeah i didn't know, I didn't know that this. that was the case for most of this yeah same i thought of of siamese dream when i i i i, I feel like long before i knew anything about music other than just being a fan of it i i feel like i knew that about siamese dream but I, I i didn't know that about this either yeah so just some other facts that we want to get out of the way so yeah billy played most of the parts uh he revealed that uh there were eight to ten hour studio days 20 recording days mixing took three days uh last took 17 hours with him butch and jimmy um yeah they they aim for ambitious album i'm going off of what billy said in his um uh, in his uh, kind of Q&A thing. Uh, he also said that he they wanted to make an album you could take shrooms to get lost in. And uh, I want to talk about that because there are some points in the album I'm like, I don't know if I'd want to be on shrooms during this part. Right, um, right. Also, they were on the, the you know, we, we talked about the uh, sub-pop um, drama uh, that he talked about at the WPC uh, solo show that we saw back in November and uh, we played a clip of that in one of our episodes. Uh, but yeah, so they signed to Caroline after a bidding war. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the deal was if Caroline wanted to keep them after this, they'd get booted up to Virgin, who was the parent company. Um, uh, but they, they actually loved the album so much that they wanted to do it sooner. And Corgan said no. Uh, we're going to come back to him saying no to the label again later. But um, he said that he'd go more into detail about why in his book that he's been talking about for what feels like for fucking ever, as long as the 
the reissues and stuff. Speaking of which, uh, we got an update on Machina reissue. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Um, man, there's yeah. so much. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, there's so much. Yeah, there's and just so much stuff, and it'll be. There's cool so to much have stuff. The other thing place. I want to that's uh, uh, worth of note is that the Iraq War was breaking out <laughs> during the recording. Uh, which is funny because Metallica talks about on uh, the Black Album how that they were recording at the same time and they wrote the song uh, Don't Tread on Me, <laughs> which is one of the worst, one of the coolest songs Metallica has, but the worst fucking lyrics and just so cringeworthy. Even they say like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a dumb song. Uh, but I, I just find it funny that both of these bands were you know, uh, recording albums and uh, during this time and one of them decided to write. Uh, can you imagine Billy writing a song about the Iraq war breaking right. out? The thing that struck me about that is that um, the first time I saw, I didn't ever get to see the Pumpkins perform in the, in the 90s, I, though I desperately wanted to. So the first time I saw Billy and Jimmy perform was with Zwan in 2003 in New York City and it was the night that that Iraq war broke out and he like oh, talked damn. about it was crazy it was like it was the day that the Iraq the you know second Iraq war or the Bush Jr. Iraq war uh, officially began and Billy was like yeah we know there's like a war going <laughs> we know there's a <laughs> lot going on um, we, um, you could be home watching the news so thank you for you know being here but that's just like a weird personal little bookend from my experience with the band where it's like oh shit and it also makes you realize there's a lot of like we're all we're always going to war with iraq it's like uh, <laughs> always you, with the bush too let's yeah, hope that the next time we bush. see the pumpkins that there's not going to be another bush in the white house with an iraq war breaking out yeah anyway back to gish uh so uh, I mean, there are other facts, but we'll probably stumble into them as we go. Uh, so, Pat, what do you say we get started? Let's, let's dive it. into it. Yeah, let's go for it. So, the number one track on Gish is I Am One. So some uh, notes that Billy said about this. Of course, they re-recorded. We had covered the I Am One track on the uh, pre-Gish singles episode, um, the the limited potential version. Uh, he, it, what I found interesting, Pat, is that he said that he doesn't consider it a great song. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that he thought it was like just an okay song. Yeah. They only, yeah, and they only re recorded it in three or four takes, uh, and that Billy wrote the drum riff, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I also thought it was interesting that he didn't think it was a great song because, uh, but that it was an undeniable. It's interesting that you could um, sort of feel that this isn't a great song, yet it's an undeniable opening track for our, for our debut album. And, and yep. it's, it seems like, and it is. I think it, it, it like, uh, he's, I think he was saying that he was sort of debating he knew he wanted shiva to be 
one of the first songs, maybe the first song, but it was, it, I mean, it is undeniable. It's it, especially that drum part. It just is such a great way into the album. And, and I think it's a great declaration of like saying, hey, we're here. Yeah, you know, it's definitely. a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. Like you're like, hey, we have the best drummer in alternative yeah. music and we're going to let you know that immediately. Yeah. And then the guitars come in and then the bass is like, yeah, this is a force to be reckoned with. I, I agree. Definitely. And, and the one thing I noticed, because we did, you know, we did cover the um, the single version of this, the previous version of I Am One. And, you know, they're, they're not terribly different. But the one thing that I, I really <laughs> noticed is... I know what you're going to say. Well, it Billy's singing is like I, I had sort of a mini epiphany because we talked a lot about in all the pre gish stuff. Each track was like its own little world, kind of. You could hear different influences of the band. Sometimes like more overt. Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, they're straight up doing like a Cure thing meets like a whatever thing. But one thing that I think really began to gel here, and I it makes sense because of what he describes. Um, the ringer that he describes Butch Vig putting him and everyone through in terms of just yeah. take, doing a million takes is his his vocalization and the it, the see you that in the <laughs> yeah. pre, like that that I think is a perfect example of a bigger thing which is Billy kind of finding his vocal swagger and, and that part of that is the is almost like a a confident slur almost which um, yeah. I know I remember being drawn to like one one example I could think of is is in Bullet with Butterfly Wings. There's the the line where he's like you, you can't you like you you can't tell exactly what he's saying, but it's like the it's the confidence and the sort of like just swagger is the is the um is the the word that came to mind. And I feel yeah. like on their best shit that that is to me what i love about billy as a singer because there's a, he's a he's going to be a divisive singer he's got a weird voice in a good way i think but like i think at its best it's that vacillation between like pretty and soft and sort of like snarling and like confidently like powerfully nasally and i think he really finds that and i am one is just a good little like test case because you got the previous version where it's like he's reciting the lyrics see right. you and it's not as confident too in delivery right right yeah, yeah there's not a, there's a swagger that's missing from that limited potential version yeah 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 that that see you part also that's it's kind of the introduction of how i mean he did it a little bit in his uh demos but the way that he pronounced burn right boing right. Yeah, he, he like it's kind of like the Credence Clearwater pron- pronunciation of Boyne. Yeah, <laughs> burn Boyne, because he kind of does that. If you listen to like later uh, albums when he ever ever sings the the word burn, it kind of has this like Boyne. You know who else does that? Uh, who? who is no stranger to uh, Billy Corgan? Courtney Love. Speaking of Courtney Love, uh, this is one of the albums. Uh, apparently, she says this uh, album has a lot of songs about her. We'll get to one of those later. We talked about it last time too, but. Um, uh, this and it's Siamese Dream. She says uh, uh, quite a bit of songs are written about her. Fun fact, everybody. Fun fact. Uh, but yeah, the CU thing is a lot uh, clearer. 
or not clearer, but it's 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 cooler. <laughs> right, um, maybe less clear, but but more cool. Absolutely. In a way. And like, I, I mean, this song was never really my favorite, but it, it, it is. A, I, I'm, I'm always, I always enjoy it when it's on. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it's. I wouldn't put it on like a top ten, but it's like one of those. Like every time I listen to it, I'm like, man, I love that. That even kind of like hint to Cherub Rock. There's a couple of moments on this album that hint to later Pumpkins riffs, mm-hmm. but like even like in this song where there's a little bit of that Cherub Rock riff that goes on, and then like the solos. I can't imagine in 1991 when. Uh, Things are starting to kind of take off with grunge and uh, solos. I guess Soundgarden was doing solos and Pearl Jam were doing solos, but this is starting to be around the time that the tide is changing where solos aren't cool. Yeah. And they're declaring right away in this song, just being like, no, here's a solo and we're going to have these beautiful twin solos going on where they're separate solos. We have two separate solos going on in one song that then meet in the middle uh, to match up and then it drops out and they just have the bass in it. I don't know. Just everything about this like kind of goes against what yeah, I guess would, would be cool in alternative music and that's kind of what set them apart. It's more Boston than the Sex Pistols. Yeah, which in the time of the emergence of grunge I feel like was sort of... Uh, um, the, fe- the, the, the interesting thing is that they did it so well is that you know that they fit squarely into the whole grunge thing but Mm -hmm. they were yeah i I get and that's again i guess why i can kind of like get on board with billy um you know his his um sense of humor type of thing like if that you know it's if that's if that's part of him having a laugh then i think you know ultimately he is having a laugh because it got them famous so Mm mm-hmm all the way, he's laughing all the way to the bank. Over to the bank, baby. Because that's Ching. true, right? This was the the this was the biggest selling indie album of all time at that time. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, yeah. I I wonder what's the the we could look it up with the internet, but we're not going to do it. Nope. So we refuse. Now, we refuse to. But I wonder what the biggest selling indie album is now. Um, oh yeah. So yeah. Any other thoughts on I Am One? Uh, no, I think it, it just you know it, it's it this version kind of shows that the pumpkins are ready for for prime time correct that is correct the next song no matter how you spell it is called shiva So I had been mispronouncing this forever. Same. <laughs> I've been saying Siva. And I even was a, a somewhat, oh, I, I was even even being aware of the goddess uh, Shiva as, a, as, as something that, you know, as a yeah, goddess. Yeah, me too. I, I just didn't connect the two. I thought it was just a pumpkin's word, Siva. Mm-hmm. So it's not... <laughs> Yeah, I, it's just it's, yeah, it's just Shiva. It's the uh, inhaler and destroyer of worlds, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah uh, he uh, what Billy says about this is that it, it had more of an original sound. It's the first true Smashing Pumpkins rock song, and uh, also the first song to use the Big Muff pedal. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so there's that Big Muff coming back. Uh, one of the best pedals ever created. Um, 
and that he said that it captures a live dynamic better. Uh, and he says to check out the Peel Sessions version uh, to see how it progressed. And I, I did last night, and man, it does sound really good. Sounds awesome. Uh, we get an Ignafo name drop there. Nice. Billy, baby. I love the, the Ignafo drop. Baby. Come on, Billy. Baby. Do the, try, these, try these pills and come over to my pad. Um, yeah, he revealed he played all the parts because Butch didn't have confidence in the other members as studio players. He pushed Billy to play all the parts. Ouch. Um, it, you know, Jimmy's awesome drum part. I didn't know that. Uh, that part always stood out to me. I guess I never noticed that it had flange on it. Uh, you know, after it breaks back in, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that Jimmy was writing the the, the mixing console, the faders on the mixing console to punch in uh, the flange on this one awesome drum part. And he overdid it, but uh, because but they left it in because it was, quote, funny. Hmm, there you go. Again. Another gut buster. <laughs> Another gut buster being like, oh, this sounds so awesome. It's so funny. Um... Uh, the, uh, they said he said that they the record uh, label wanted to edit it down for radio play, but he said no. Right, right. There you go. Yeah, I remember it as a single, but probably, um, but but probably on MTV and not the radio. Yeah, I saw the video much later because a hundred a hundred and twenty minutes used to do like these kind of like artist spotlights. Or they would have members on the show come on and they'd show all their videos. And that's when I finally, like, this is way after the fact in like 94 or 95, uh, where I was able to see these videos because I'd never seen them before, uh, you know, with uh, Shiva and Rhinoceros. And uh, what was the other one that was, maybe it was just those two that had the videos. I can't I remember. So I, maybe I didn't see them until I got the VHS tape of the video collection that came out like around when yeah. the band broke up. Um, I recorded it off of 120 minutes and I, you know, wore that out. I talked about in one of the mini episodes or or last mini episode about how um, I I had recorded the the episode that uh, Matt Pinfield had interviewed James and Darcy about Scratchy Records. Mm -hmm. Um, And they showed a lot of those videos during that as well. But I mean, uh, before that, they had done some kind of spotlight on them. And that's where I had seen those videos for the first time. And I remember being like, whoa, they look complete. I knew knew from the album cover and from the pictures of that era, but like, especially seeing them in those videos, I was like, wow, they looked completely different. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy too watching. I watched. Um, I don't think it was the Cabaret Metro performance that he was referring to in the deep dives, but it was one from. Yeah, that's a separate one they're going to record. Yeah, I could. I don't movies. know. I, I assume that's not uh, uh, on YouTube right now, but I, there there were certainly several others from the early '90s, and there was one from 1990 that I was watching. And man, it's like they're so young looking. It feels like you're watching like a school talent show. And then an act comes on 
and it's like holy shit these kids can like rip they must practice yeah. like all the time like in fact like that like billy and jane it, it, except for um uh jimmy who looks um i had the thought uh that jimmy looked like uh casey jones from the teenage mutant ninja turtles just like a, <laughs> yeah, a yeah. muscular guy with a mullet in a sleeveless like flannel shirt um uh, it, yeah, I actually we could if we if we have time. I think I that got me writing down which um, Ninja Turtle every uh, every band member would be. But that's not that we could save that for the end if we have time. That's not an important. Uh, or we could do it as a bonus mini episode. Yeah, it's a really quick thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which Ninja Turtle were they at this time? Cowabunga! Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what you were watching was the Metro show, the Chicago, the 1991 that they released on uh, the DVD for the reissue. Because mm-hmm. I think that's up on YouTube. Um, people had ripped it because there's a couple of like those extra uh, from the reissues that people uploaded on YouTube. Thankfully, yeah. Since yeah. I don't own those uh, at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, this song, I really, I love this song. It's so good. Yeah. Um, oh man, I love this song. I love the detour that it takes at 150. You know, I, mm-hmm. I always like that part. And like, it's kind of a signature of the pumpkins to take us down like a new, like, as you said, like a new room or a hallway. Yeah. Uh, within it's like not only the albums, but within the songs. And this was a good indicator of what was to come. Um, I think I even heard in something that Billy was talking about, it, it may be in the deep. To, it, it, I think he even made the same analogy about this album, about like wanting to bring people into like a house or like a series of different rooms or something. Maybe a, I think he, it it was like the same vibe that I got from Melancholy. He applied that to um, this album. Yeah. And I think that like, it's kind of weird. Like this is something that kind of like wasn't done at this time of like the song structure, because like, it's weird how it goes back into the cool down. And then like, it goes into that quiet part with the kick and the bass, which is kind of reminiscent of Silverfuck. Yeah, and then it does that amazing break-in back. I, I love that part, and that's where Jimmy's drum part at 4.05, where he has that phase on it, but that drum fill that he does, or that drum part, always gets me. Oh, when yeah. I see the song live, I'm just like, yes. Well, it feels fuck, live. Yes. Like the, the tell me, tell me what you're after, I just want to get there faster, and they rip back into it. Like That feels like a live moment. Like That feels like it's capturing the energy of, of what Ugh. the band was, was doing as a it's live It's so band. good. So, the next track is Rhinoceros. Yeah. 
So yeah, this is, uh, we've covered this before uh, in the Moon Demo episode with the previous version with that Ignafo keyboard Ooh, solo, baby. baby, the B3. Baby, and speaking baby, of baby. jokes, the Ignafo keyboard solo was all one big joke. It was a big laugh. It was a big laugh. They said, we want to get a record deal, so let's put this joke on this song. <laughs> That's why I have issue with this of being like, you're trying to actively get a record deal and you have an incredible song and you're like, you know what would be funny? Let's have Mark do a B3 Hammond organ solo for a laugh. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is kind I, of funny. I just don't understand. I guess, I don't know. Like, there's something about it that feels like, yeah, that's that's cool. That's funny to me. But at the same time, it's like you have a fantastic song and you're trying to get a record label. What? You know? <laughs> what are you doing? But hey, that's you. You try saying no to Ignafo. No way, yeah. baby. When he's like, hey, Billy, baby, Billy, I've got this B3 organ here. What do you think? We do some coke off of it. We take some lewds and uh, some LSD, and then we go to Pleasureville, baby. You, how are you going to say no to that? How are you going to look yeah, Ignafo in, the, uh, in his bloodshot eyes and say <laughs> no to that? Again, uh, libel and slander. We're doing uh, parody do not sue us. Right. We love yeah. you, Ignafo. Someday we got to get Ignafo on the show at this point. But we until do, so then, that he can make fun of us. Right, yeah. But until then, we're the, the caricature of him is, is going to persist. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's going to keep going. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I, I love this song. It's got a good groove. Love the bass sound on this. It obviously is a step up from the last time we heard it. Um, and I, I kind of see this as like a proto-hummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of cool, like, little sounds that just kind of come in and out of this uh, version that I really love. And I guess I, I'm one. I'm wondering the backing vocals on this. Who's singing it? Is it him, or because I know live it's usually James or Darcy, mm -hmm. but like, uh, I wonder in the studio if he's doing the backing vocals. Yeah, it sounds like Billy to me, but it's yeah. it's tough to say. It's tough to say. I have to really. Yeah, I wonder. Maybe that should have been a question we asked for the follow-up. Uh, it didn't seem like he was too thrilled with that uh, follow-up and the lack of questions that were asked or the type of questions that were asked. Um, yeah, he was. He really was like, <laughs> it was like he. So I guess it, it just it, it just in terms of Billy's Instagram life, like I really liked this deep dive because it didn't feel like as antagonistic and as sort of like <laughs> right. negatively charged as the. IG um, story sort of uh, model, but then when he yeah, started I, dipping into that, it seemed to trigger. I, apparently, the trolls are. I, 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 I'm curious what his benchmark for troll question is, but you know, I, I, I do, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are just like, "Why no more song like today?" And like today is spelled wrong, you know, like whatever. Yeah. I'm sure it's filled with that. But on the other hand, you know, we're, we're all we're all fans. That's what sucks about it because he talks about like he was a little hesitant to revisit this because how people say like, oh, no, that era is all that you are and all that you were and you haven't done anything good since everything mm -hmm. after that doesn't have the same value as that. And we, of course, don't agree with that whatsoever. You know, it's one of the reasons why we started this podcast is also to revisit the later stuff to kind of have a new appreciation for it, but to also point people who are casual fans to be like, hey, maybe let's do a deep dive and check this out. But um I mean, it's sad because, like, there's got to be tons of people who send bullshit like that. But then when somebody... You, you'll see sometimes on those Q&As when he answers it, somebody will just have a genuine question about, you know, uh, Siamese Dream, and he'll 
put a, go- a, a zombie gif there. Right, and it's like, right. And that person will follow up being like, what's wrong? I, I actually genuinely want to know about this. And he just re- responds with another zombie gif. And then even like I got trolled uh, <laughs> when I asked, when I made a comment about Zeitgeist. Uh, oh, yeah. What, he had how answered did... and apparently uh, another uh, fan uh, pointed out being like, hey, where are these idiots going to know that you are, you know, you're making fun of uh, the people who uh, talk positively about Zeitgeist and that you're just trolling them. And it's like, what the fuck? I know, man. It's like, you, you, with the humor, the laughs never stop. <laughs> the laughs never stop. Um, anyway, back to the song. Uh, at 3.05, when the distortion kicks in uh, and does that cool key change, and then it goes like right back. It's so good. Yeah, I love it. And then even like there's like a moment at 508 where like there's a background vocals that kind of sound like they're phone vocals. You know what I'm talking about? Where it has that kind of sound where it's like sung on a phone. Which feels like so ahead of its time because alternative music is like felt like a blueprint for this song in that moment felt like a blueprint for like alternative music that would come after in like 94 right, or 95. Right, right. Like Stone Temple Pilots type of stuff, like like megaphone type of stuff. Yeah, kind of like that. I mean, I'm not thinking so much about Stone Temple Pilots because they were kind of around the same time. I guess the combination of like, uh, I guess Core came out uh, around that same time. But like, um, you know, like you're better than Ezra's or like there was a, mm-hmm. a certain pedigree of alternative music that used that kind of like background vocal or repeating vocal using that effect of like that telephone effect yeah uh, that you would hear a lot in alternative music um we talked about the mustard lies of course you know in the other episode where i had no idea that's another thing too is like uh, with uh siamese dream and pisces and um with uh, melancholy i had poured over the lyrics and i knew every single word but with this album i didn't pour over the lyrics as much and so like that's why a lot of the stuff revisiting i was like oh that's what he's singing yeah yeah i mean we've talked uh, about the mustard lies mind blow but yeah i i've i've learned a lot of um the lyrics for this album just in the last couple of weeks listening to it a bunch and some I haven't. Some I haven't bothered to learn, and I think that's okay too. You know, it's like <laughs> leave some mystery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on? Oh wait, uh, I was gonna say that uh, there's a that the end of it. There's a couple of times on the album they do this, where they have that fun at the end of the song. This fun phase and fade into like this kind of guitar, where it sounds like a little bit of like a, a race car or something. There's this kind of feedback phase mm-hmm. thing that's going on it reminds me of um I, I mentioned this band before in this album but failure's fantastic planet uh one of the things that this band failure does is they have these uh little uh kind of 
what they call segues mm-hmm. um and they do it they've been doing it for like four or five albums um but they put these little segues in before it goes into the song it's like a little bridge to the song but they call these segues and that's what that reminded me of with mm-hmm. this uh you know um at the end of rhinoceros going into the next song i think it's really cool yeah and they, and that's something that kind of carries over into siamese dream too oh yeah uh so pat you want to set up the next one yes the next song is called bury me saying at the because that's james right um yeah the unchained part well no the uh, like when it starts yeah, with the feedback and he goes bury me like an angel here's what uh spfc.org says that he's singing or he's saying at the beginning over you like an angel I uh, didn't hear that, but that's what SPFC.org says, so I'll uh, trust them. Yeah, we've they've never anyway. let us down before, so. Over you, like an angel. Um, well, this, I guess this isn't one of my favorite songs, and it's this was another one that Billy sort of made it seem like it wasn't um, one of his either. Um, he kind of called it like a weird Frankenstein of a song. He said there was a lot of, and maybe, actually, I will say, I didn't dis. Billy's take on the song or his explanation of the song kind of made me agree with him and like it a little <laughs> bit less because he point he so he so astutely kind of pointed out its flaws and kind of just said it was a lot of smoke and mirrors that didn't really get to a point or a melody that you could sink your teeth into, which or a lot of power but without real melody. But there's a lot to enjoy here because it all the stuff that is there, all the power that is there, is like really good tastes of just the smashing pumpkins sound so it's it but but um yeah it, it, it's it's i guess it's not one of my favorite songs and billy yeah convinced me I, I agree with that like that. this isn't this never was really one of my favorite songs however i i remember listening to this and being like eh but then when that change happens at 254 that james wrote Like the way he's singing, like, you know, bury me. Like that whole part makes it worth the price of admission alone, I think. And to me, 
listening to that section, I was like, well, why didn't they just make the whole song this? Yeah, I love that part of the song. That that section of the song it's is so, a song. The layering is cool. <laughs> the, the, it's point. catchy. It's awesome. The little guitar part. It, it feels like a lot of, like I said, mm-hmm. the alternative that can't, came after it. Right. It's yeah, such a cool definitely. part. So yeah, I think that that, uh, that last part was, it kind of makes it worth pri- the price of admission alone. I feel like, oh, there's a whole song that you could write around that part because it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed. Totally agreed. There's a lot of mis- misheard lyrics for me in this song. Uh, at first, I thought he talked about, instead of saying, um, will, will you bury me? I thought he was saying, will you marry me? So I was like, he's talking about marrying his sister? <laughs> Gross. I think I thought that too. Ew. I think I heard Marry Me too. Won't you marry me? Won't you marry me? me? Yeah, there's a definite Mary sound there, but that's that kind of like slight slur that, you know, that. Yeah. uh, And there's one part where I think he's saying, son of a bitch, you just can't hide. Oh, what's the, wait. Oh, some, some are things. Some of the things. Yeah. Yeah. But he's like, son of a bitch, you just can't hide. That's like um, when you're trying to kill a bug in your apartment or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's some cool parts in this, like the metalish uh, kind of hand mute stuff that they do mm-hmm. also in another song. I don't know. And that has the, at the end of this song, there's also another segue thing that I was talking about. Like, I love those little segues. Yeah, definitely. Any other feelings on Bury Me? Um, just that they buried the coolest part at the end. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next song is Crush. Crush, Billy says that he wrote this song coming off of an acid trip at 3 a.m. in a studio apartment above the Music Box Theater in Chicago with his future ex-wife, Chris, uh, or that he was living with her, um, and that the little bass climb was inspired by two bands had used a ma- uh, the A major scaled up. Um, he said major or minor seventh. I don't know. That's that's whole music theory stuff. I talk about how I flunked out of <laughs> the music department and music theory class. If you want the music theory stuff, listen to this discographer's podcast. But um, that he uh, that he was uh, inspired by that and kind of did his own riff on it. And that uh, the lyrics were Curtis Mayfield inspired. Um, and he talks about his bell necklace that you know makes a little chime at the end of the song mm-hmm. that Butch wanted him to remove it, but he thought of it as good luck. And uh, you hear it at the end of Crush, uh, and he did that to fuck with Butch.
and you hear it a lot in daydream, which we'll talk about later, but yeah, that that's what he, those are the kind of the facts and stuff that he laid out about this song. Yeah. I'm curious what those two songs are that he was referring to. Um, but it's just that ascending baseline. I think that mm-hmm. he was, it, but yeah, it's, it, it seems very familiar. I'm curious why he didn't just say what, um, but he made it seem like, but the, you know, but I'll never tell. But um, yeah, yeah I, I really like the song. It's the it, it sounds like the circumstances that he described. It definitely it's it sounds like kind of you know coming off of an acid trip at three a.m. with your future ex-wife. Um, the lyrics <laughs> are um, I, I really like the lyrics. They're kind of simple and sweet and straightforward and and druggy a little bit. Um, yeah, it's chill and hippie-ish. Yeah, uh, kind of the very blissful. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to, and he he addressed, he touched on this later too, more like when he was talking about the artwork. But I I happened to, probably because the it, it just visually it jogged my. I was listening to the vinyl of Gish a lot these last couple of weeks, and I also have been listening to Jimi Hendrix Experience. Are you experienced a lot? And and just been I've just been noticing like parallels, and it's like uh, big themes about each you know. Um, obviously are you experienced sort of speaks for itself but like Gish is kind of that too it's sort of like insights found in like a drug experience and like answers kind of found uh, um, uh, in like a life changing drug experience so this this definitely has that um, feel and you know all that matters is is love um that's a love your love beatles beatles like um in a a cool way yeah i I really like this song i think in general this kind of go around i I was really vibing with the sort of mellower um moments on gish and this was definitely one of those that that i was really enjoying listening to yeah, I mean, when I heard this as a teenager, I mean, like, I, I was into it then because I kind of loved how beautiful it was and how cool it was. And I imagined like, oh, yeah, I just kind of imagined a, you know, a lovely summer day in the park and just kind of basking in the sunlight and just really just kind of chilling out, even though at that time I had uh, haven't I had not experienced any intoxication intoxication whatsoever, so I couldn't identify with that. But just I music, mean, later baby, on, just music, Ignapo. just music, man, just the good music. That's all it was. You don't need to get high to have a good time, and that is true. You know, it's true. Yep. We have some sober listeners, and uh, I, I salute you for that. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, I think um, this song in particular just really beautiful. I love the production on it love the little bell sound at the end it's so so, it's kind of a cute factoid knowing that oh yeah billy's bell necklace yeah what a what a funny character young billy was hey you like rock and roll well rock 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 is dead so yeah uh any other uh uh, thoughts on crush um no it's it's one of my top three or four off the off the album I, i really liked it same here um all right so the next song is called Suffer.
So Billy says that it was inspired by spooky doors. Um, he was doing a lot of LSD at the time and wanted to take you on a musical journey. And a person he dated at the time played the penny whistle, and that's what he used for the flute solo. And he says, this is what I thought was funny. He said that Butch rolled his eyes at it. <laughs> right. And that they were. But didn't try to, to stop of, him, right? Just sort of. Yeah, he, did, like, he was just like, all right, whatever, pretentious nature kids. Yeah. Um, but then, like, uh, he was listening to a lot of Ravi Shankar, which is obvious with throughout mm. this album. Yeah. Uh, but And he said that Butch didn't like the song, uh, but they never took it seriously. And uh, But they what you said before is, like, he said that they play with the cliche as long as they were in on the joke. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those songs where, uh, you know, he said that it was for mushrooms or acid trips. But if this song came on when I was on a mushroom or acid trip, I would freak the fuck out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not all of the album would make for a um, uh, what they call what what Michael Pollan would call the right set and setting for um, a, prof- you know, a, a positive uh, psychedelic experience. Yeah. I mean, at 2.30, it goes into real psychedelic uh, kind of backdrop. And, like, that part I could see with the flute and everything. Like, that part I can see it as being, like, uh, maybe part of that positive experience. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's part of the journey. But, man, like, because on that part, I would be like, you know, uh, guide me, cosmic whale, into the black triangle of the moon. You know, I would be, like, into it. But then the, the other parts of the song i'd be like freaked out i'd be afraid i'd be imagining like little goblins coming and talking about suffering to me right yeah suffer yeah i guess that's what you want to avoid in in a situation like (laughs) this is suffering but not in this case i'll let you suffer Ah. but yeah it is a cool song i love the like um i love the um the little interlude the little sort of walking bass line it's yeah it's 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 a very cool song yeah it's fine (laughs) um yeah agreed a very fine song um so after suffer must come snail Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I had this on my mix uh, when we did our mixtape episode, but uh, this is absolutely in my top five favorite pumpkin songs of all time. And it really sets up uh, what you would be hearing on Siamese Dream, and it really kind of sums up the sound of the pumpkins to me. Um, and I think uh, this is what Billy had to say uh, about this, is that he Jimmy nailed the, the drum uh, drums on the first take they only did one take, and uh, he said that they had to switch from 4-4 four, four time to 6-8 time, which is tough, but yet he's still, I mean, again, just the power of Jimmy and how uh, excellent of a drummer he is. 
and that it's one of uh, Billy's favorite songs of all time because uh, of uh, the optimism and feel of like what's going to come in the future. And he said, that's who the band really is, four personalities coming together. And I have to agree. Yeah, yeah. This is also one, one of, it, it, this is a song, an example of a song that because Gish just wasn't as deep in my bones as a lot of the other albums, I sort of didn't realize how much I loved this song until recently. And I, I feel like it's kind of like um, he, Billy brought it up recently or kind of played it. Um, it was t- it just, t- I think was just referring to it recently as like sort of, you know, even before the Gish deep dive as sort of like a special pumpkin song. And man, I, I kind of feel like I've been asleep at the wheel on, on snail until relatively recently. Cause I, I agree. I, it's, it's definitely um, up there for me. It's probably my favorite track off the album. Yeah. It's definitely for sure. My favorite track off the album. And it's um, you know, it's like a minute in and already we're in this great, like, you know, the distortion hits in and it's got this great bass part and it's uh got a fantastic chorus in the song and like it, it kind of feels like a pre-drown mm-hmm. uh track like what you hear a lot of songs and moments that what you would be hearing on drown later but man that uh, on at 146 there's a guitar part that is just ah uh, it's so good that cool down part too kind of sounds like it reminds me of hummer you know another thing that reminds me of hummer is that cool down and then it goes right back up and it's uh man it just you get lost in that guitar repetition of that dun 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 And how he sings on that, just like the way it builds, everything about this, I just, I can't sing the praises enough for this song. It's so fucking good. It's fucking great. The last minute is just like, the, yeah, the 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 build, the it, what a build. I love a, I'm a sucker for a for a song that builds, and this this really really does that um, in a great way. Yeah, that's one of the things that always turned me on to their music is the way that they could kind of cool it down and then build back up mm-hmm. it, it's it's a common thing even to the music that they do now you know yeah. it's one of the elements that has always survived through the time is their loud quiet dynamics mm-hmm. um and they that that's that's part of what the appeal to me of their music was because you weren't <clears throat> i mean like alternative bands at the time were doing the loud quiet loud thing but uh th- mm-hmm. there's a certain dynamic that you would hear that was commonplace for alternative, but there was a way that the pumpkins did it that just made it so much more unique. Yeah, and it was more like like um, you know Nirvana comes to mind with like loud, quiet, loud, or Pixies or whatever. And and not to say that they didn't have this too at times, but it feels like the difference is that the pumpkins would do. It was like this creeping wall of sound that would like like a big 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 wave that would eventually crash as opposed to like loud quiet loud, you know to actual like switching it was sort of like a, a, a wave cresting that would crash and the, they're so good at the the journey from quiet to loud and vice versa yeah yeah 
All right, the next song is Tristessa. So another uh, song that they re-recorded, uh, Billy says that it's a Jack Kerouac reference. We talked about that before. He says he regrets this one the most uh, because it's more of the same. Uh, he wanted to come up with something new and better, but was unable to. Um, and then he talked about how it was a crib on the song East, which is one of the songs we covered in the demo mm-hmm. uh, episodes. But also he said that Drown, he would have probably preferred that Drown would have been on the album. Um and I, I wonder what that would have sounded like with Drown on this album. I, I would have to say, like, yeah, that would probably be pretty awesome. But also, Drown seems like he even says that he considers Drown more of a Siamese dream era than Gish era. But mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, I, it's so funny that he's so down on the song when it's such a uh, such a strong and awesome song. Yeah, it was very interesting to see the ones. Uh, and, and I feel like th- it sounds like what he's so down about is that there wasn't something new that could rise above it. That was a clear, you know, a clear option in favor of it. Um, so, yeah, that was a really interesting aspect of this was the, the fact that he, you know, admitted to having such trouble um, writing at the time. Um you know, it, it, it's it, it, for somebody who's so uh, prolific, and whether you love all of it or hate some of it or love, all, you know, some of it and like some of it, it's he's you can't deny that he's he's been prolific for probably for you know from this moment on. I mean, like yeah. it, 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 it it sort Although, of just never stopped. Yeah, I mean, but he did talk about like how he had writer's block um, going into Siamese Dream that then got unlocked. But like, yeah, it's so weird to think about that because even him talking about the fact that he, he's like, oh, we didn't have a lot of material going into recording Gish. And it's like, we just did three episodes on, yeah, <laughs> you know, or yeah. four episodes on uh, on a wealth of stuff. And we didn't even cover all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and But he made the point of saying like, uh, some of the band members, he had fights with other band members who thought like, oh, we should be using this song to re-record, but he didn't want to. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And I feel like this song was a good choice to re-record because it sounds uh, great. I still love the um, the sub-pop version, mm-hmm. uh, but this sounds great. I mean, like, it, there's still like a little bit of uh, grit to it because if you really listen, there's like this real, like little rattle of distortion, like on the distortion. Mm-hmm. Um that sounds great. Uh, it it, it kind of gives it a little bit more of that dirt and edge that the original had while still sounding, having that butch, big, clean, awesome sound. And of course, that part at 233 with the dive bomb with the drums, mm-hmm. uh, it's so good. It's great, yeah. It's yeah, and he did he did sort of refer to like closing the book on the on a, the, all, a lot of those other songs, and um, kind of it it seems like what what this 
and he obviously reasoned that these songs could fit into that, but it seems like what what they were doing and trying to do and what was like really important to this whole process was like the gelling of the influences to really make them a band that is no longer derivative, has a lot of cool, diverse influences, but is is doing their own thing. And I think I think these songs definitely, um, even though he considers them sort of from an earlier chapter, they they beefed them up and so like they you know they feel like they're they're part of that effort like you know there's a reason they, they made it onto the album i'm you know it, yeah i it, think it's so clear. i mean it's gonna inspire a sound you know it's gonna come for years after that it's mm-hmm. it's so good yeah 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 i'm just turning into jimmy fallon here just been oh so good oh, so it's good awesome. uh, it's so, awesome. so awesome yeah so you know when you did that dive bomb part it's so good it's unbelievable <laughs> okay uh yeah any final thoughts on tristessa no but you know it makes me uh, makes me happy. Not sad. Not true. Stay. This next track is called Window Pane. Billy says that um, a lot of people didn't like the song, but the band loved the song, and that there was a stolen bolero part from Deep Purple and Ted Nugent, uh, more Nuge uh, than Deep Purple, however you feel about that. Window Pane was named after a popular LSD uh, tab that tab or whatever. <laughs> you could tell how much LSD I do. Um, but a, a popular strain, strain, a popular yeah, type of the LSD. Closest that I could think. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> I sound like such a fucking narc. Well, I, yeah, I know. So what do they call it? Flavors? Brands? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, didn't know that about this uh, title. I had never heard of that type of LSD. Me neither. I, I, um, I didn't really... I guess I knew that there were types of LSD, but you know, not really. Right. I don't know. I knew there were types Liquid of trips sunshine. you could have. Yeah. And I knew there were different like cartoon characters you could get on the tab. You know, you could mm-hmm. get Beavis and Butthead, SpongeBob, uh, <laughs> really anything. Dora the Explorer, do a little exploring. You have name you ever it. done LSD or acid? I have. Uh, I, I've I've done LSD. I'm almost embarrassed at how young I I did LSD on two occasions, very, very small doses, like a half a dose, two times in high school. So I, I, um, I, I've not done like the, and then, then I've also done much, much later in like a very, um, sort of controlled way, like a serious, uh, mushroom thing, so I can kind I I kind of use that as a stand-in for like, because I could kind of feel like what the LSD was like, and I definitely know what like a powerful hallucinogenic thing is, but I've never done a full force 
LSD thing. I just had like two little tastes um, when I was much younger. Busted. I'm telling on you. Oh, yeah, guys. Please don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've never... Yeah, I've never done... I've only done mushrooms, but I've never done LSD or uh, acid. So I like I'm not sure what that trip is like. Uh, but I think it's funny that they think it's like a wink or a joke to make fun of a song titled after LSD. Again, another joke, another funny yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny too because it's not like that because it sure sounds like they were doing a lot of LSD at the time too. So it's like <laughs> like a ton of LSD. So it's yeah. like, um, but yeah, I, I like the, he's yeah he said it was like you know a joke on kind of making fun of bands who would name their song after a type of LSD, but yet they are one of those bands. Yeah, LSD had a lot to do with this album, and I think I misquoted Moon Demo episode. I think I misquoted Billy uh, uh, saying for the Mustard Lies a little anecdote that he was high out of his mind on mushrooms, but it was actually LSD. It seems like LSD was the the drug of choice in this... uh, in this era i wonder was billy just doing it were they all doing it what you know i think they were all doing it from what i remember reading and hearing about you know it's funny that you mentioned that like misquoting because there's going to be times in this episode where we're going to quote someone or say something and then i'll i'll drop that was one of those times (laughs) post edit i'll actually drop in the thing that contradicts it right and at this point i'm like i'm not even gonna fix it sometimes i fix it and other times i'm like whatever the audience will yeah that's listening to it i was like oh well i i you know but yeah it's not worth like uh uh us recording a disclaimer or anything but it i did feel like a dope but then again you know i did it on purpose pat to make a fool of me but he did i think he did reference at a different point in some interview or something being so high on mushrooms that he was going to jump out a window or something like he it, you know I yeah think he, he's been out of his mind on mushrooms before so. i'm pretty sure that at that show he had mentioned mushrooms i thought so, so that's too. where we that's the yeah i thought so too but in the gish yeah. deep dive it was all about lsd baby ignafo yeah ignafo hey take it they take this uh, tab here it's got the picture of fred flintstone yeah baby this is what i call the ignafo's flintstone vitamins take your vitamins if you want to record baby yeah so yeah i think that uh this song always like i would always confuse this with suffer Mm-hmm. Um, because like there were, those were always the songs I would skip, uh, when I first would listen through the album and it's got like, I like the beginning of it. It's got this kind of cool reverb pedal, Holy Grail. I mentioned this pedal before, but like that, you know, electroharmonics, uh, Holy Grail pedal sound. And it gets interesting when it starts going into that, do what you want to do. And, and then the sports, especially in like 307, when he starts screaming, I think mm-hmm. that's great. And then, uh, you know, 421, the solo and the vocal part, it's it's really great. It kind of, how it dips out, I love how it, like, uh, dips out and you just hear his vocals. Do what you're gonna do And say what you're gonna say Do what you're gonna do Yes, yeah, start today Mm-hmm. Which kind of sets up for like, uh, like it kind of reminds me of like Everlasting Gaze. Yeah, where it's yeah. Just, just just his vocals, just starkly. Uh, although in Everlasting Gaze, it's 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 super dry. Yeah, 
impersonation of an everlasting God, you know I'm... And this it has obviously some chorus or like some effects on it that make it sound so good, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great ending. Jimmy sounds great. Uh, it kind of feels like a proto silver fuck ending mm-hmm. to me. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on it, Pat? Yeah, same. It was. It's. Um, it was never. It was never one that I would um, settle into which you kind of have to because it's a long song, but it's definitely worth it. And I think it, I think it's worth it to hear Jimmy. Like, it's another great build and it, it pays off at the end with just like, you just get to soak in kind of the full power of the band, which, um, you know, it has a lot to do with uh, Jimmy in this case. But um, it's, yeah, it, I think it's a cool song. It's, it's not, not, my, not my favorite, um, but... You know, I, I, I like what it what it what it displays. Cool. Alright, and finally folks, you know it, you love it. Daydream. So yeah, we've talked about this song before, or there was a version of it. Um, I realized that what I plopped into the episode uh, was a different recording than I was talking about of Billy singing Daydream. Uh, but there is a uh, the demo version of Daydream that's available on the Gish reissue, the mm-hmm. reissue, if you will. My But uh, Billy says, of course, as we, you know, uh, knew and we we, uh, guessed is that it's My Bloody Valentine uh, inspired. Fantastic band, My Bloody Valentine. If you've never heard Loveless, then what are you doing? But yeah, I, he loved how Kevin Shields captured the modern psychedelia. Um, he said it might be too close to the bone of a My Bloody Valentine song. And even that Kevin Shields said himself that uh, he loved it. And Billy said, yeah, you should because you might as well have uh, written it. Mm-hmm. Um, first time that strings are on a Pumpkins record, which then uh, would inspire for the use later. Um, Billy was going to sing it, but decided to give it to Darcy, kind of towards the Belinda Butcher type of vocals that My Bloody Valentine had. And uh, (laughs) Darcy claimed that Billy got jealous and wouldn't let her sing on a record again, and Billy denies it. Uh, He said that she never offered to and didn't offer it up, and he didn't want to offer it up because it wasn't worth the drama in the future. And that she barely cleared recording, uh, that it was a difficult process and, you know, the same process that Billy had to deal with, but apparently she had a harder time with it. Again, who's to say, you know, 
uh, what yeah. the true story is. Uh, I'm sure it's somewhere in the middle, as they always say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that interesting. Um, I did too. And the one thing, like, it's like, I guess you kind of have to take both accounts with a grain of salt. They're clearly mad at each other still, or it's it's like not water under the bridge. Whatever the problem was with these two is it's just clearly still raw like it's it's crazy to me i'm a little bit obsessed with it i'm a little bit like this has nothing to do with this is like two adults with a beef that like who like i don't know personally and has nothing to do with the music but then again it seems to have everything to do with the the, (laughs) the music too um i i can't help but sometimes feel just like defensive of Darcy because it's like how much could she have struggled and maybe a lot I don't know how much could she have struggled with the vocal recording uh, of this like how ugly could it have been it came out great you know what I mean like it's just I'm just so fascinated with what the real core of the beef is maybe it's just like bad blood plus time in this yeah. case, didn't it went in the opposite direction of healing? It's just kind of gotten the negativity has just gotten set in stone. But I just kind of like feel like I can't help but feel def- like defensive of Darcy when it's like she couldn't hack the vocal, the artwork, which was a really interesting aspect was- of this thing. Just in general, I was really fascinated with that whole thing. But how Darcy was going to do the artwork. But like she couldn't hack it at that for some reason. I'm kind of just like. Well, he said that he said that uh, it wasn't that. It was just that the artwork was good and he liked it, but he felt like it was too close to another band's artwork. Right, right, right. And they last minute scrapped it um, and had her sister or friend take the photo that you see. That which you I meant to mention this. You were right because you had predicted where you had said earlier uh, before that the the Jimi Hendrix album mm-hmm. cover, you know, the, a nod to that, and that's exactly what they did. But yeah, that she had designed the artwork for it, and they he just denied it, you know, because it was too close to the other thing. Kind of to what you were saying about um, defending, you know, her, her side of things, I, I'm kind of on the same side as you. And I kind of see, though, how, you know, because by the time that Melancholy came around, there was full confidence in her singing backing vocals and her playing because a lot of that stuff was recorded live because Flood uh, and Alan Mulder wanted to record that stuff uh, more of a a live band feeling than say Mm -hmm. like, you know, overdubs and stuff like they did on Siamese Dream. And so like her her proficiency, of course, had grown by that time because, you know, they had toured relentlessly between that time of, you know, 90 90 through 90, uh, you know, four, 93 or whatever. Uh, before they started recording Melancholy. So I could see how, like, maybe she just needed more time. But at the same time, it's like, well, give the opportunity. Right. You know, I think that, like, uh, again, this kind of goes into just our society in general of just being like, well, you're not good enough. And it's like, well, were, was this other person good enough? You know, like, right. you, sometimes you have to let people rise to the occasion. And even though he says that he let her sing and she didn't, she barely, um, cleared it and the, there was a difficult process it was a difficult time and again I wasn't there I can't speak to it so this is just me saying from an outsider's perspective of like well maybe that moment uh, helped her reach her potential mm-hmm. you know and like maybe right. she did need that to to get to the next level and of course over time it was obvious that 
her having that experience and other experiences of touring made her a better bass player, made her a better singer. And rather than kind of just being like, well, fuck it, I'll do it myself. And I understand that you have time and money. And I don't know what her attitude was like. I don't know what, you know, Mm -hmm. what the dynamic was. But at the same time, like, you got to let people rise to the occasion instead of just kind of dismissing them and being like, well, fuck it, I'll do it. The thing that bums me out is that this thing that, like, Darcy was difficult, could barely get, you know do the thing it was a nightmare um and that in that moment that's when i decided i would never again give her a song to sing and it also is a bummer that it's like obviously the one female member is the one whose abilities seem to be most like it right up through the drama over like the reunion tour and everything like she wanted to do it but the issue at hand was like is she able to do it it just is a bit of a bummer, and and maybe it's not fair to. I'm not alleging sexism necessarily or anything, but it, it doesn't like. It doesn't look great, and it, it it sucks because obviously, like, people really cherished Darcy as a member of this band. Yeah. Because it, because of the fact that she is a female present, because of her voice, because of her, you know, be like she it, it adds. It adds, you know, it adds, the 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 diversity at like it, you know increases yeah. the the quality of the the sum of its parts. So it's that, I, and I wasn't there, so whatever. But you know, yeah, it is exactly. a bummer on the surface. About, and there's a difference between that and like tokenism and like it kind of I don't know the history of the fact of the female bass players they have that haven't worked out. Just kind of, it's a it's a bummer. Yeah, you know, um, we're speaking as outsiders seeing it from our perspective so we do not know the full story we don't know the yeah. dynamic so you know whatever but we're just kind of uh, coming at it from our perspective and i'm sure there's way way more that you know as we know with every story yeah there's just yeah. things that you don't see there's just some things that aren't public and there's some dynamics that just don't work i can also understand like oh we're kind of like four kids dicking around getting kind of good all of a sudden the big leagues come and like you know maybe this this group dynamic just was kind of dicey from the start and it's just gonna make everything that much harder when like the stakes are high so i i understand that too but it is just like yeah like you're saying from an outsider's perspective it sucks that this recurring theme of like darcy be darcy's abilities being under suspicion is just a bummer to see i guess no comment but anyway, the song Daydream itself, I love it. It's one of my favorites of all time. I think it's my other top song from this album. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like it, it just it sounds I mean, I'm a big My Bloody Valentine fan. One of the you know, best concerts I've ever seen. I saw them twice and they were uh, phenomenal. But like this song pays enough homage that's that's uh, respectful, tasteful and it's uh, and also sounds like its own thing and uh, you could hear Billy's jangle uh, mm-hmm. throughout the track which I never noticed before until I listened with headphones and uh, it was really uh, funny and I love like I love Darcy's voice I love like kind of the coldness you talked about this too where it has like that Nico quality to it yeah and, and, and you know also j- like it like uh, Billy obviously wrote the song could have sung it himself and it was a great call to um, to give it to Darcy to add this sort of n- other elements of the album he said he wanted it to feel like the serene end of an again an lsd trip which which it you know which it definitely does it's like um it's like a soft beautiful landing of this this 
sort of hit, like if you do look at this as like an LSD trip, it's like a you know you go through a lot of dark tunnels and there's a lot of loud, crazy stuff and and, and a lot of dynamic sounds and it really is sort of a soft, sad, bit, bittersweet sounding landing to this thing. So it's you know, it's a great great capper to the album and probably my other also my uh, other favorite song off this album along with Snail. Correct. Well, I guess that is it for Gish. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Wait a minute. No, that, is that? Okay, wait. Hold on. Am I going crazy? Because we got one more track to talk about, gang. Secret song. I'm going crazy. So, uh, as we all know, late 80s, early 90s, I guess even into the late 90s, it was uh, very in vogue for bands to put like little secret tracks uh, at the end of their albums. And uh, I, I, I'll be honest, uh, I don't love this. The, the track itself, not so much the phenomenon of, of secret tracks, but you're not... Oh, a- no, I love secret tracks, and sometimes I think that they're really... Uh, I think they fit, you know, I think sometimes they're, they're really cool. And, uh, but for this, I know like, uh, just to kind of get the Billy fact out of the way, he said they were waiting on something technical and he picked up a guitar and asked Bush to record it. And they did it in one live take. And how at the time they were kind of going stir crazy and everything. And, um, and like, it, it's a kind of fun little stupid, like little song. Um, but I can't, I can't imagine, given the, the kind of the, the goal for this album, again, maybe this is just kind of his little joke, uh, but like you said, Daydream feels like the, the perfect ending, especially if you're doing a trip. If this is meant for a Mushroom or LSD trip, Daydream seems like the safe landing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have this factor into it, and I would freak the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I leave. I just I had the dreamy pillowness of you know audio pillow uh uh goodness of daydream and then all of a sudden i have this like little i'm going crazy, crazy diddy mm-hmm. um where him just being like motherfucker crazy and i'm like yeah holy shit you know i i would freak out i don't know i just don't i think it kind of ruins the end of the album for me and that's only me personally that's the way i feel about it i kind of feel like it could have been like a little just b-side or extra track you know um, I, I think i kind of agree i think back in the day i think i was definitely there for it for the the whole secret oh, song uh thing yeah just, me too just in general because it felt like cool and secret and you know there's swear words in it or whatever but as an adult listening to it it definitely um i mean the real cynic in me w- it would say that like it's almost like billy <laughs> billy wanted to just remind people uh, one last time that like he is the lead he is like the main voice of this band <laughs> right. you know like just kind of oh like, man i didn't even think about that it's kind of having the last word right you know it, it, it maybe that maybe that's not fair but um it's yeah i mean it, it, and it's like billy wrote daydream so it's like you know kudos to already on like a, you wrote this great album ending song right. and like had the you know the the idea to have someone else sing it because it would just be better that way so yeah i agree it this feels like maybe like uh 
maybe it would have been better suited as like a little bit in the like Vuforia um tape or something like that like uh but or even at the end know. of like lull or something yeah i mean mm-hmm. you know anyway uh but that's my feeling on it i, I think like i could take or leave yeah but as a as a teenager uh hearing it i was like fuck yes yeah this is awesome secret track also he just it's it's cool because like he's going crazy man like, right right it's one of those things as like a teenager you're like this is really saying something i know and the motherfucking cra- and it also makes me think of um green day like the end of oh, yeah. dookie that song all by, all myself. by myself both similar yeah. sort of like muted little jokey kind of like you know songs at the end um my favorites used to be like whenever they would like put the track at like after like track 99 or you would have to do some kind of trick on the cd player to get to yeah uh you know like one of my favorite hidden tracks is uh jawbox has a hidden track uh where they do a cover of um cornflake girl this is not this is not really happening But it's such a good cover. You're like, oh, I wish it was its own track, its own song. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it was so good that you were like, why can't this just be its own thing? Um, I'm trying to think of like later, like the last secret tracks or like most recent albums that had secret tracks. And one that comes to mind is TV. One of the TV on the radio albums right? has, and I listened to it on Spotify recently and they've loaded in like 12 sort of just blank audio tracks on spot like in order to achieve it it's like hidden track buffer number one hidden track buffer number two because it doesn't work right you know it doesn't like yeah it just it doesn't have the same effect anymore yeah uh, i mean hidden songs man as a kid i loved it uh but like as an adult listening to a full album you know enjoying the album and for what it's kind of supposed to do i don't know i just don't i, I don't really appreciate it now yeah yeah same here, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think I agree for the most part. That's just me. That's just one man's opinion. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, Andy Rooney here. What's the deal with these hidden tracks at the end of albums? I mean, I already enjoyed the last track. Why do I need Billy Corgan singing how he's going crazy when I just enjoyed the lush sounds of Daydream? And why does it need to be a secret? <laughs> What's with all the secrecy? Aren't there enough lies and secrets in the world? What with the Iran-Contra scandal? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, that's Gish. We did it. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny. It's interesting because he talked about, like, you know, somebody asked if, like, he would do a, a 30 anniversary tour. And I think, like, what I found interesting about that is him saying, like, and I agree with this of him being like, well, I don't want to just play the album front to back. Mm-hmm. Like, what's interesting about that and how he said that they would just do a set that would be true to the era. Yeah. Which I think is awesome. I, I, love I would that. love yeah. to see that. So, yeah, overall thoughts. Um, I mean, I really love it. Um, I, I, sometimes I wonder, I go back and forth if it's in my top five uh, Pumpkins albums or not. And that's been changing a lot since starting uh, this podcast, uh, especially really diving into those later albums. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's a fantastic um, you know, declaration of saying, hey, we're here and this is the type of band we are. Um, and uh, overall, I think really great stuff. Uh, it's a solid album. 
highly recommends. Pat, what are your overall thoughts? I just want to add one last important thing. Uh, yeah. Just refer to one last important thing that's not so much about, well, it's it's about the album art. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. He, he um, it, I really enjoyed hearing about the process of that. But the one thing that really stuck with me, and Billy said it and, gl- <laughs> and glossed right over it, he said, you're going to have to wait for the book. But he was talking about the back cover art, the Sacred Heart yes. uh, artifact, which was given to him by a witch when, that he met when he was 19 years old. And he said, that's all I'm going to say about that. I want to know more about this witch. And I, I want to know it as soon as possible. I want to know the circumstances of the, you know, the meeting with this witch. I picture it in the forest, but I don't think that's probably what happened. But I want to know more about the witch. Um, I, that, and if that's an example, like, I, I also just, I feel like we were kind of like, you know, um, expressing some like, you know, bummer thoughts about the Darcy stuff. But I, I, I will say, watching these deep dives, it was the most endeared I've felt to Billy in a while. Because I loved him. He was, it was like, I think he's a, you know, definitely a musical genius. I admire everything. I admire his, you know, um, uh, ambition. I admire like his, you know, even if it sometimes comes off as like controlling or maybe domineering among the band members, like his perfectionism. I think it's just like important, you know, perfectionism can be a very good thing and it can be like what leads to excellent um stuff so it was it, it was really cool listening to him just talk about this as like a creative collaborative project right down to um right down to the cover art and especially this being like before the band broke big a lot of it was working within parameters budgetary parameters and sort of like oh yeah we got this person darcy knew to come do this thing and like we like you know, uh, I ended up just doing the font myself and that kind of set the tone for <laughs> right. like the band's iconography and stuff. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to mention the witch and I, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed listening to, um, listening to the, the story about the album art too. Like I, I, I'm a visual art person. I like to draw and, and do, do stuff like that. So that was like, that was as interesting to me as as the music stuff, and I think as we've talked about um, many times, is like you know part and parcel to to the, you know the whole band's the, the, what people love about the band. It's like it's not an afterthought. The visual aspect of this band, it's like very woven into it from the the beginning. So I thought that was really cool to hear about. Yeah, I thought it was cool that that it was a medical photographer, and that's why the detail is so because the camera that the medical photographer. Oh had, yeah, yeah. That's why the detail on the Sacred Heart is so uh, specific because he had a very high end camera because he had to take pictures of uh, livers and cadavers and stuff. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Like a, a, a decorative like heart thing photographed the way that someone would photograph like a splayed open like actual, you know, heart is <laughs> like that's like a pretty cool detail that we wouldn't I, I don't know how, you know, else we would have ever learned that. So, yeah, that was very cool. And the Jimi Hendrix thing, I'm sure like he meant like I'm sure that's been pointed out for years now, but that you know it was cool to hear confirmation that they were def they were like going for that. It was like a little nod to to their psychedelic um, influence, owning yeah. it and having fun with it at the same time, having a laugh, having a laugh. Are you having a laugh? 
Well, Pat, it's been great talking to you about Gish. I know uh, people don't know this because of our release schedule and how we had a, a backlog, a lot of stuff, but it's been about a month since I've uh, talked to you over the phone since you've been doing uh, daddy duty. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's been really great to get to talk to you again about uh, Gish and about the pumpkins, and I look forward to doing more. And again, congratulations uh, for being a new daddy. And uh, I guess the next time we'll talk, we'll be talking about the Lull EP. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Frank. For And it's, and I want to give another shout-out to Frank for sort of steering the ship as I've been, uh, you know, focused on... Uh, rearing my child rearing am i rearing uh, taking care of <laughs> taking care of our baby um but uh yeah this is really fun it was really fun uh it's just like a fun assignment you know it's like we we give ourselves these homework assignments to like learn a lot about this this stuff but it's what it really is is like very active listening to music which is ultimately like my mm -hmm. favorite thing to do listening listening to music and like appreciating Me it too. on different levels so this is like really fun homework that we uh, are able to to give ourselves and it's exciting that we we're really like even though we've done a lot so far we're just we're just scratching the surface kind of we got a lot of stuff yeah, to go we got a lot to cover uh it feels like we're just starting even though we've had 10 or so episodes so far <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah, I mean, uh, granted, most of those were mini episodes, but like true full episodes, uh, we've had about six or so. Um, but yeah, we're just getting started. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us on this journey and uh, to start going down this path of uh, the official releases. And I said before, we're going to go back through later on to do some of the, the smaller stuff that we'll miss. So we'll probably uh pick up the eps and stuff before uh siamese dream um and then we'll just kind of go to the full albums and eps after that that will do it for this episode of the smashing Pumpcast. i'm frank i'm pat and until next time farewell and good night, night. What's the deal with these hidden tracks at the end of albums? The joke is over.